Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and John 20, 30 to 31. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us um, by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, LLC. It's good to be with you uh, on this uh, Sunday morning. Uh, my name is Doug, if you're joining us for the very first time, and I'm a pastor here at Lord's Love. And if this is your first time, uh, we are starting a new, you came in a good time, uh, because we're starting a new sermon series called Faith and Life, uh, Why We Believe uh, What We Believe. I was fiddling around with the title. Um, I don't think it's perfect still, uh, because we're encapsulating a lot of different topics. Uh, but really, this is apologetic series. Apologetics coming from the Greek word apologia, which means to give a defense. So really, it's this whole series is giving a defense, giving us uh, some tools in the tool belt for understanding why we believe uh, what we believe. And we're going to be wrestling with some really tough topics. Uh, and um, we're going to try to answer uh, th these questions. Uh, some weeks, it's going to be a conversation I'm going to have uh, with certain people. I'm going to try to go for something like that. Some weeks might be like this, where it's just straight me uh, just, just talking and uh, speaking to you. Uh, but we're going to address topics like what gives you the right to tell me how to live? Uh, how can you say there's only one God when there's so many religions in the world? Uh, why does God allow suffering? Uh, the problem of pain is a big one. Uh, why is the church responsible for so many injustices in the world? I think about the wars and, and the history of the church. Um, and how can God send good people to hell? And we're going to end the series with, with that uh, big topic as well. But today uh, we're going to talk about uh, the Bible. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the Bible. Uh, and I'm going to say a quick word of prayer uh, before we go uh, into the rest of the sermon this morning. Father, uh, this morning uh, I just pray uh, that uh, as we go into this new series, this new topic, that uh, as a moment where it feels like it could be very heady and just about knowledge, I pray, Lord, that you would move uh, the knowledge from our head uh, to our hearts, God, that we would experience you, Lord, that this isn't just about knowing more, but it's about knowing you and knowing who you are, Father. So speak to us, give us eyes to see, uh, hearts to comprehend, and minds to know you as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I'm going to open up with a story this morning, a story that I read uh, from Open Doors, uh, which is a ministry that supports Christian, uh, persecuted Christians from around the world. And uh, the story goes like this. Bahia, which is not actual her real name uh, to protect her, uh, Bahia is a 24-year-old Bible school student in India. And as she held her Bible, uh, she was dragged uh, out of her house. Uh, men and women were beating her, hitting her wherever they could. And she asked and shouted out to the crowd, to that mob, why are you beating me? They yelled back at her saying that it's because you're a Christian. You have to go. This isn't your home. But she said, I live here. This is my home. And she was unable to protect herself from the blows. And she started to bleed. And one 
person held her left arm and the other person held her right arm and she was squeezing the Bible as tight as she could underneath her uh, the whole time. But finally someone yanked it from underneath her and they were holding it and saying to her, we're going to burn this book. We're going to burn this book. We're going to get rid of this book. And they dragged her away and that was the last time she ever saw her Bible. Because for her, it's important that for her, God's word was proof of her faith in Jesus. And the Bible and her belief was the reason why she was beaten. Stories like this isn't just uh, true to Baha'i. Stories like this happen to, all, to Christians all around the world where the Bible is opposed and outlawed and challenged in many places. I remember reading another story where a missionary brought a Bible into a, a country and the people there, the, the man that he was talking to, fell, was, went to tears because he was like, you actually have a whole Bible? He was holding just pages of scripture in his hands. Like, you have the whole Bible and you just have access just like that. And as I start off with that story this morning, if this is just a book, why burn it? If this is just a book, just an ordinary book, why burn it? Why is it so important to get rid of of it. According to Voice of the Martyrs, uh, which is another ministry, uh, there are 52 countries around the world where the Bible is banned. Uh, firstly, there are uh, there's different ranks of it. It might be too uh, small for you to see. Uh, it's categorized as uh, countries where it's difficult or dangerous to obtain a Bible, or number two, illegal or highly restricted, or number three, strictly illegal, and only those uh, Christians and missionaries need to smuggle in uh, into these Bibles, into these countries. And for strictly illegal, we're talking about countries like Afga Afghanistan, Iran, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, uh, where missionaries are risking their lives to bring the Word of God in. And we're starting with the Bible this morning because as Christians, the Word of God is important to us. And Tim Keller says it in this way, the Christian faith requires belief in the Bible. The Christian faith requires a belief in the Word of God and, and, and understanding who he says he is, and I'm relying on a few sources uh, this morning. Tim Keller's The Reason for God, which our life groups are going through right now, so you know what I'm talking about. But also another book uh, by um, by Amy Orr Ewing. Uh, she wrote a book called Is the Bible Intolerant? Uh, and it's a great resource for this topic as well. But the question we're going to address this morning is, can we really trust the Bible? Can we really know that this is the Word of God? Can, do we really, can we really trust what's written inside of it? Because the big idea for us this morning is that if the Bible, why is this relevant? Uh, many people are asking, why is this even an important question? But this is an important question because if the Bible holds up, then we can stand up. Everything that our lives depend on, uh, that we have hope on, that and peace and joy and goodness and understanding who this God is and, 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 the, uh, and the life that we have, if the Bible holds up, then he is who he says he is. I think God is who he says he is. And then we can also have this, this life, which is why the Bible is one of the most scrutinized books in the entire world. Because as a Christian, if you take away the Bible, you take, the, take away the word of God, as I re read that story in the beginning, we think that you can get rid of the faith. Uh, but the thing is, God transcends uh, all things. That he, and he has revealed himself to us through his word. And it's been preserved for, through us, uh, to, to us uh, through his word. And it's relevant to us that if Jesus is who he says he is, which is recorded in the Bible for us, then the question of can we trust the Bible isn't irrelevant. It's actually the most important question we can ask. 
if if the Bible is true and Jesus is who he says he is, then this is where we can derive life and our understanding of meaning and ethics and our spiritual direction and what it means to love and care. It, if the Bible is, it holds up to scrutiny, then we can stand up and understand and have a new whole way of life. And I, I love how uh, Paul uh, writes in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, uh, the, how the Bible is useful for us. Uh, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But there's a lot of controversy, though, around the Bible. Uh, as Christians, you might be like, yeah, this is good. You know, this is why the Bible is true. But as we talk to non-Christians, using the Bible to prove the Bible isn't a very useful conversation. <laughs> uh, it's a difficult uh, conversation for us. There's a lot of controversy. Uh, as Matthew, uh, who read the scripture for us just before this, he, he was reading scriptures about how these are eyewitness accounts, as Luke said. I have seen these things, therefore I need to give an account of this. And the Apostle John says how because he's seen these things and the miracles and the work of God, uh, it's we, he's recorded it down for us so that we can also know and we can also see and understand who this God is. But the controversy around the Bible is this, like, do you really believe in all this stuff? Has anyone ever asked you that? <laughs> do you really believe all this stuff? Like, you can't take the Bible literally. Uh, like, all the miracles and that kind of stuff. Like, I can't believe in the Bible because of the miracles that we see. Or you might think, well, isn't it just a matter of interpretation anyway? Like, it doesn't really matter, like, if it's right or correct. Like, it's up to how we interpret it. And people in history and the church has taken it to interpret it in different ways. So why does it matter? Isn't the Bible sexist? Or it says slavery is okay or going to war is okay. Uh, how can we trust what's written in the Bible when it's been so long ago? Isn't it just a bunch of stories? And what's kind of what evidence is there for this? Well, I was, I was talking to our leadership, uh, our team this morning. Uh, um, there have been courses on this topic. And I'm going to, in the next 20 minutes, <laughs> try to address as much of it as I can. But these are great questions. And and as Christians and as apologists, which all of you are apologists, where you give defense and witness to the faith, uh, we need to ask good questions. And we can't shy away from the difficult ones. And having faith doesn't mean you check out our intellect. All right? When we had a church building, well, we still have a church building, but when we walked into the church building and you tune into service this morning, because we tune into a Christian Sunday service doesn't mean we left our intellect at the door. Like we just checked out and be like, you know what? This is, you know, what it is. Like we're, we're still thinking people. God has given us brains and reason and, under, and a way to understand him. And as Christians, we need to explain, or at least for us, ourselves, explain why we believe what we believe. And maybe today is less of a sermon. I don't know, whatever you want to categorize this as, and more of a talk. And uh, I'm not a biblical scholar. And you're like, oh, I knew that already. Um, but like, in some sense, like, I, I'm not. So I'm going to try to give the best that I can uh, reason for us. But the two hopes I have for us is this: that it would encourage you. Simply, it would encourage you that the Bible that you're reading, the words that you're reading, are from God, and that we can trust it, and that will encourage your hope and your faith, and that you hold on to this word tightly. But also, secondly, that if these conversations and questions ever come up, that you would have some tools. You have some talking points to explain why you believe what you believe in. So why do people have trouble trusting uh, the Bible? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over this quite quickly. Uh, um, it's a lot of uh, philosophical conversation here, but I'm going to call this the human problem, all right? So 
the the human problem is first this we can't trust the bible some people say because it's a matter of interpretation that well it doesn't matter if it is the word of god or not because you know you interpret however it is that you want so why does it matter but that's not true about words though right like like words have meaning there's a reason why it was written down the way that it was written down because logically speaking, that's why we write sentences. That's why I'm using words right now to communicate with you. There's a meaning behind what I say. And maybe an example, I want to push back on this idea that it's all interpretation and that it doesn't really matter. Imagine I'm going out to um, to eat with you uh, right now. Um, I just see Simon on the screen, so I'm just going to say Simon. Uh, I'm going to I'm going out for dinner with, with Simon uh, in the good old days. And I'm talking, hey, what do you want to eat? And he's like, ah, I really feel like a pizza tonight or I really feel like a burger. I really feel like a burger tonight. I'm like, all right. So the waiter or waitress comes and then, uh, and then I say, um, oh, Simon told me he wants a burger, but I go to the waiter and waitress. Oh, we're going to get two pizzas. And Simon's like, go turn to me as a waiter walks away. It's like, why did you order a pizza when I wanted a burger? Oh, did you actually want a burger? Like, I thought those are just words. <laughs> I, I thought you didn't actually mean that. I thought, oh, I, I, I just interpreted it as a burger meaning a pizza. Like I'm just, you know, like that, 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 that's just what, what I thought you meant. No, it doesn't make sense, right? Like words have meaning. There's a context to that. And we don't just take words to interpret it and understand it in whatever way that we can. And it's, it's the same as in scripture and the same as anything that's written down that we need to interpret it well in order to gain good understanding interpret it in the right sense. And G.K. Chesterton, who is a theologian back in the day, he says this, the Bible says that Herod was a fox, but that does not mean he he has a bushy tail and pointy ears. It also says that Jesus is the door. That does not mean he is wooden, flat, and swinging on hinges. All right, like, like when we come read the Bible, it is a matter of interpretation, true, but we have to interpret it well. So it does matter. Words matter. We need to interpret it in the right way. Okay, the, the second problem, so first is interpretation. So Bible is irrelevant because you interpret however you want to interpret it, so it doesn't really matter. I will push back to say that it does matter how you interpret it. Second, it's the problem of postmodernism. And you can go on about this, but to summarize is that there is no truth. That there is no truth. So why does the Bible matter when there is no truth at all? Like why do you need to follow the Bible when truth is irrelevant? And what's fascinating about this claim is that it is a truth claim of itself because we are told that the truth is there is no truth which I don't know how that makes sense anyway because that itself is a truth claim if you're telling me that there is no truth then I don't need to believe that you are saying it's true either <laughs> so it kind of contradicts itself in a way um, so th this kind of thinking has led to postmodern historiographers like Greg Denning to say history is something we make rather than something we learn because it's we just create it ourselves we just make it ourselves or other famous sayings that you might have heard like history is written by the victors right you would have heard that saying before but again that can't be entirely true like even biblically speaking there's so many times where disciples look foolish or the people of god were defeated but that's recorded for us in scripture we read of that defeat we read of the wrongdoings we read of their failures second of all we must, just not even biblically speaking, second of all, historically speaking, we need, we must be able to know something about history. Just think about that. Like take events in history like 
or the Holocaust or residential schools or yesterday in, in our life group, we talked about Tiananmen Square, right? Like, like we talk about things like we know, we do know with some, with certainty that de there are details to these events that they did happen. But most often of times, the ones that go towards and go into conspiracy theories often follow this postmodern thought that there is no truth. How do we really know? Uh, you know what what's going on, but here in Christianity there is no conspiracy because here's the thing, when you read your Bibles, if you notice there's footnotes on the bottom. Those footnotes are the things that we're not sure about, where there's variances in the ancient texts. We're saying, hey, there's a few texts that there seems to be some differences in the wording, so we're not sure. Instead of hiding it, which many religions do, we straight up just put it down there, be like, hey, it's there. There's nothing to hide. We see it. We notice the differences. And here it is. We don't hide it. We put it in a footnote <laughs> and let, let everyone uh, see it. So you might be asking a question then, like, so how do we know anything in life at all? Right? How do we know anything is true? And this is by done by cross-examining, especially in ancient texts and with history. And a lot of research has been done on the Bible and it's been scrutinized uh, more than any other ancient text in the world. And quick little story here. When I was in seminary at Axe Seminaries in Langley, our, our classes were right beside the Canada Institute of Linguistics. And they offered the Master of Arts in Linguistics and Translations. And the sole purpose of this program was to train students to be Bible translators. Uh, so these people were being trained in the language to be sent out because there's still 2,000 languages in the world without, Bi without the Bible. And I've had the privilege of having some classes with these men and women, and they're brilliant. They're brilliant men and women. I've had conversations with them. I didn't understand a word they were saying, but they're brilliant people that exegeted the Greek and the Hebrew. And they, I mean, they were like, like you're eating breakfast, they're eat, reading a Hebrew Bible. Like, like that. These are the people that are there, and they're not Jewish, okay? Like, like they're just sitting there. Like, these are the men and women, and these are brilliant people that have worked on the text, that have translated it, have studied it, so that we can have it nicely bound like this. And my point is, is that the Bible didn't fall from the sky like this, all right? It didn't fall from the sky in a way. It it was it was highly scrutinized and put together in a way that makes sense. And I'm gonna try to explain for us a little bit here. I'm gonna switch over from the human problem to what we call the historicity problem, which is uh, how do we know, historicity means to historical authenticity. How do we know what we read really is what was said and what happened in time? So what is the Bible anyway? And when we speak about the canon of scripture, we're referring to the collection of biblical books that Christians accept, accept as uniquely authoritative. In the Bible, uh, it's a collection of 66 books. It's one, we often say it's one book, the good book, but it's a good book collect, uh, of a collection of 66 Bibles in two sections, the Old and the New Testament, 39 in the Old, 27 in the New, written over 1,600 years, over 40 authors from different backgrounds and contexts and economic backgrounds as well. And why is that important? Because people have said that this has been used as a tool of imperialism. That that's what the Bible has been made. Well, the Bible has been written over from different groups of people from across the world, in the known world at that time, from different economic backgrounds, from kings all the way to servants. That it wasn't just written by the elite. Uh, the Bible itself was written, again, in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, over three continents. 
And these are all important things just about the Bible again that we might take it for granted that it, it was just formed in this way. But the Bible, it wasn't found in the forest. It, it wasn't created by a small group of people hidden away in a secret location. You know what? We're going to put it together, 66 books, and like, you know, like write this story. Like, okay, go. Like, you know, it, it, it was written over time with different groups of people. It was, it was preserved for us on, on material like papyrus, which is durable reed. Uh, layers of reed that were laid flat and dried so that it can be written on so and then rolled up so it's preserved for us some of it was on parchment which is written on like skin of sheep uh, as sheep and, 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 and goats and the integrity so you're like well that's great Like, but how do we know what is written actually is what it is well the integrity of any ancient writing is determined by a few few things a few few questions we need need to ask um and the first question is, how many copies do we have of the ancient texts? Uh, how do we know uh, 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 that it's? Um, how how do we know what the original was? Well, we, we can tell by how many copies we have. Number two, how close to the original from the events it reports were the copies written, right? So what was the time gap between the original copy that was written and then the copies that were written? So what was the time gap from the events, and then how many copies and witnesses were there actually, and you might be fascinated to know that across all these three questions, the Bible holds up very well. And compared to ancient texts, just, I'm not talk, talk, coming from a Christianity point of view, just from looking at it as purely as an ancient document that holds up very, very well. Uh, the Bible stands up well. How many copies uh, do, do, we, do we have? And this is kind of a hard chart, um, a, um, a difficult chart for us to to read, but I'll just say to us that how many copies do we have of the Bible, uh, of ancient texts? Uh, we have 5,795 in the Greek, uh, whereas it's, as you compare it to other texts of that time, and often Caesar and Plato and Homer, uh, they're brought up. So the, the Greek um, New Testament, we have around 5,700 copies. Caesar has 251 copies. Plato has 210 copies. Homer has 1,757, which were all significantly less than the Bible. But we never question their accuracy. We don't question it at all. And, or the time differences. Uh, the New Testament, as you see right here, I don't know if you see my cursor. Uh, it was written 25 to 50 years after the events that were going on. Whereas a Caesar, the copy that they that they have of that was 950 years afterwards. Plato was 1,300 years afterwards. Homer was 400 years. That was the next copy that we're able to find. Yet we don't doubt those sources. We don't doubt the accuracy of them. Now you can go on about this, but you might be asking this question of, well, okay, there might be accuracy here. Uh, and no one really questions Caesar, but really, why does any of this really make a difference? Well, the thing is, some say that the Bible is just a bunch of stories. The Bible is just a bunch of stories, but this timeline of how close it was to the original. So say the Gospel of John, for example, uh, from when John saw the events to when he was written, uh, from when it was written, when John wrote it, and from when John wrote it to the next copy that we, that we found all within a very short amount of time, like 25 to 50 years. Because of that time, it wasn't enough time for stories to be made up. Because why? The people were still alive. The people were still alive. Like, 
like John was writing about this, the people would have been like, I was there. Like I was standing there and no, that didn't happen. Uh, like that's not what, what was going on. Uh, so like some people said the miracles were just added in a long time to make it more spectacular, uh, spectacular to more make Jesus look more miraculous. Like there's a, there's the Jesus of history versus the Jesus of faith. Like you Christians believe in a Jesus of faith uh, because you want to you know, make Jesus look better than he re really is. But Jesus of history, he was just a normal person. Which, by the way, for some of you, Jesus was a real person. That might just be news to you today. Like he was a historical figure. He wasn't just a person written in the Bible. Um, and and there's time. So within the short amount of time, there wasn't. Uh, people would argue that uh, because the Bible was written, like well, maybe because of the time, like legend would have appeared. But again, there wasn't enough time for there to be legend to to be created uh, because people were still alive. So why are the Gospels uh, eyewitness accounts and not just legends? Like, why can we take them as actual eyewitness accounts? Well, I'll lay out a few reasons for us. That the timing, again, is too too early for the Gospels to be legends. Uh, Mark 15, 21 is recorded a man. Um, and we saw this in a video, if you're going through your life groups, that, uh, that helped Jesus carry the cross, which is uh, the father of Alexander and Rufus, which is very specific. And in scripture, when you say that, it's like, hey, if you don't believe Mark, then you go ask the father of Alexander and Rufus because they're still alive right now. Like you go and ask them what happened. Uh, or 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 6, Paul refers to 500 witnesses that appeared. 500, 500 witnesses that appeared and saw Jesus post-resurrection. Or how we, how it, in other texts that we see, it wasn't only Jesus' followers that said they saw Jesus, that wrote about Jesus, the government officials also wrote about Jesus. So it wasn't just like, oh, there's confirmation within the church that they saw Jesus. Like there were people outside of the setting that opposed Jesus, that also wrote about Jesus and what he said and what he did. Second of all, the content is too counterproductive to be, to be legends. Like if you want to make up a story, if you want to make up a good story, you're not going to put Jesus on a cross. Like, simply speaking, you're not going to put the king of the universe dying on a cross. You're going to have him coming in on a white horse, defeating an army, and, and obliterating everyone and showing his power. It's counterproductive, counterproductive to put a god on the cross. Which, by the way, in that time and setting, if you need to interpret that well, the cross was for criminals. So if I read that someone was on the cross, I would have already assumed that he's done something wrong and dismissed him. It would have been counterproductive to write that. And also, they, it's counterproductive to write this because the disciples had nothing to gain. Like, all of them died for their faith. Like, they had nothing they gained from it. It wasn't like, oh, stardom and fame and the kingdom and they became kings. Like, like nothing. They had nothing to gain from that. But they wrote it because it was what they saw. Um, and also wrote about how women are prominent. I, I preached about that in, on Easter Sunday. If you want to make up a story about seeing the resurrected Christ, you're not going to have women, which were seen in that time of having lower status. You would have put in someone like a government official. Uh, you would have put in someone like a scholar or someone like that. But no, it's too counterproductive. Why would you put that in? Because that's what they saw. That is what it is. Thirdly, the literary form, so the way that the Gospels were written, they're too detailed to be legends. Right? I'm not going to name some other religions in the world, but I found a 
writing from God somewhere, somehow, someplace in the ground that's disappeared now. Like, very oh, vague, very, very, very um, uh, misleading. But in scripture, we see details that are far deep, uh, a lot of details that are like, well, how is that even relevant? It's relevant because they saw it. Like, that's why. That's why they recorded. Why is it important that Jesus slept on a pillow in Mark 4? Like, I don't care if he slept on a pillow or like he slept on his back. Like, why does that matter? It's because that's what they saw. Peter was 100 yards away from the shore in John 21. I don't care how far he was from the shore. Why does that matter? He jumped into the boat and then they also caught 153 fish. You could have told me 150. I wouldn't have questioned you. Right, John 8, like John writes how Jesus writes in the sand. And we have no idea what he writes. Like, why include that detail in there? Because that's what John saw. So he's telling us that's what he saw. And he was honest. I didn't know what he wrote. <laughs> like, he was honest about all that. And so here's the thing. Like, the Gospels are eyewitness accounts. And I don't have time to go over the rest of Scripture from Old Testament, all the other books. But there are eyewitness accounts to Jesus and, and, and God in the flesh working and doing what he is, what he can do. And as I mentioned before, men and women have gotten into the ancient texts. You might be thinking, well, how do we know that's really what John wrote, right? How do we really know that's what Mark wrote or Luke wrote or what Matthew wrote? Again, men and women around the world, way smarter than I, that can explain this way better than I can, have looked into the ancient texts. Uh, that being preserved for us. And let's get geeky a little bit, if it hasn't been enough, if I haven't lost you already. Texts like the Codus Vaticanus, which is preserved for us in the in the Vatican Library, or the Codus Sinai Ticus, which is found actually at the church at the base of Mount Sinai. Um, they, they are parchment copies of the entire New Testament, dating back to AD 325. And people have taught, have studied this and, 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 and compared it to other uh, uh, texts that they have found. Other texts like the Chester Beatty Papyrus or Papyrus 45, which you're seeing right there is the portion of the Gospel of Luke. Or the Bodmer Papyrus number 2, which is dated, uh, both of them are dated back to 180 AD, so even older. And which from these uh, five documents, you can construct all of Luke, John, Romans, 1 to 2, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and Hebrews, including parts of Matthew, Mark, Acts, and Revelations. From these five ancient documents all the way back to 180, 80, 225 AD, which, by the way, is before Constantine was around, and Christianity was declared a religion that was accepted. Or if you don't trust this, there's others around those time peers who wrote about it that were outside of scripture, like our church fathers that we talk about. Clement of Alexandria, who's known as the church father, wrote about it in AD 95, even older. We might not have the exact copy, but they they quoted from scripture themselves. And it all matches across 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 the board. And the ones that don't match, it's in the footnote again, as I mentioned. In fact, there are over 86,000 quotations of scripture found from these, from these early church fathers. Meaning, meaning this, get this guys, if we lost all of the world's ancient documents of papyrus and all that, of the Bible, purely from these early church fathers, we could reconstruct 
the entire Bible. Purely from their quotations. Thank God for commentaries. <laughs> and the work that they are doing. Okay, maybe that's not entire truth. We'll miss 20 verses. Okay, um, we'll miss 20 verses. People have done this research. People have looked into it. And not only did the early church fathers have this, but historians that are outside of the church, historians and opponents of Christianity and governments, they write all about these and they claim that these are all real people. And that's not enough. Again, I don't have time to show through all this. Time is coming to an end. But there's the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was found in 1947, which a shepherd boy wandered into it by accident. Uh, he was looking for his uh, sheep, and then he thought the sheep fell into a cave, so he threw a rock down the cave to see how deep it was, and then he heard a bunch of pottery shatter. Uh, he's like, whoa, that, that, that's kind of weird. And he climbed into this cave, which is just south of uh, Jerusalem, uh, along the West Bank in the caves. And to his surprise, they found, uh, they found all these pot, uh, pots that preserved uh, the ancient text for us. Uh, they were written. Uh, for 1900 years uh, of, of what these scriptures were written and they were dated back all the way to uh, 68 AD uh, which by the way uh, Duncan our worship leader talked about the major prophets which was how we confirmed that the major prophets are the major prophets because of this discovery that was seen all the way back then it's not just back in 1947 this was last month last month they discovered another cave on March 16th, 2021, they found another set of Dead Sea Scrolls just south of Jerusalem where there are 80 new pieces, including a Greek rendition, uh, not just of the major prophets, but they found ones of the minor ones, minor prophets of the Hebrew translated into Greek. You're still asking, how do we know? How do we know that this is what has been preserved for us? And you might be asking this question today. And remember how I said how the documents, they were written across different continents over different periods of time. But let's just take again the Gospels, which talk so much about Jesus and which why Christians, we talk about it so much. The Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew was wrote it, written in Judea, Mark in Rome, Luke in Antioch, John in Ephesus or Turkey around that area. And people are like, well, they're written in different areas. How do we know? Like, how do we know they actually were there as eyewitnesses? And in ancient texts, there's different ways to, to see this. And Dr. Aiming, uh, Amy Orr Ewing, which I quoted from before, she's the president of the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. Um, and she explains how we can tell whether someone was there by the details that they tell, whether they match up with the timing of that scene. For example, if I was an eyewitness to an event, uh, how do I know I was a kid that was born in the 90s? Uh, or a kid that's born in the 2000s, well, I would have told you in the 90s that Tamagotchi was a hot new toy, right? I would record things like that, Tamagotchi or Furby or Troll Toys or Pogs, right? Those were very popular back in the day. I would include that as how do I know I was, I grew up in that era. I would include those kind of details. Well, uh, Dr. Or Ewing explains that about names. And I'm going to show a short clip here uh, about that. Number one, Simon. Number two, Joseph. Number three, Lazarus. Number four, Judas. Number five, John. Six, Jesus. Seven, Ananias. Okay, and so it goes on. 
If you take the top nine most popular Jewish male names in Judea, Palestine in the first century together, outside of the New Testament, they are 41% of name used, names used. If you take them inside the New Testament, they are 40% of names used. And that's a pattern showing up over four writers writing five books. And remember, because we include Acts, so the four Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles, and remember, written far, far, far away, some of them. This pattern, this statistically testable pattern shows up. It's absolutely amazing. Now, in case you're not incredibly wowed by this, which I hope you are, if you rank the names that people were called in Jewish um, communities in first century Judea, Palestine, and compare it with another country not very far away where there is a large Jewish community, Greco-Roman Egypt, first century, just a few miles away, and you look at the names of what people were called then, you see a different pattern. The most common names in Jewish inscriptions of men in Greco-Roman Egypt in the first century are number one, Eleazar, Lazarus, two, Sabbateus, three, Joseph, four, Josephus, five, Pappus, six, Ptolemaeus, seven, Samuel, and so it goes on. Names like Sabbateus, Josephus, and Pappus are in the top ten in Egypt, but they're not in the Gospels at all. Why not? because the Gospels are not written about Jewish people living in first century Greco-Roman Egypt. They're written about Jewish people living in first century Judea. And remember, they're written by people who were writing quite far away. How did they get it right? How did they get it statistically correct? And they were living so far away. Is this the telephone game again? No, this is extraordinarily accurate and actually incredibly difficult to get right. Now, often it's said of Americans and Britons that we are um, people separated by a common language. Have you ever heard that? And, um, you know, we speak the same language, but I suspect that if you were to pick up 2015's top 10 male baby names in Britain, they would be different from the US top 10 male baby names in 2015. If I were to ask you, can you tell me what the top 10 male baby names 35 years ago were in Britain, would you be able to do it? No even though we share a common language. And actually, probably even with access to the internet, it might be quite difficult to do that. We could do it with Google, maybe. It's very difficult to get this kind of detail right. Getting this kind of detail right, and not just getting it vaguely right, 40% versus 41%, getting it statistically right is extraordinary. What this shows us is that the Gospels are eyewitness testimony written about real people who really did live in Judea, even though they're written far, far, far away. 
I'm way over. I'm way over time. But I hope from today uh, that you'll be encouraged by this. I would love to have way more of a conversation with you outside of this. But my final encouragement to you is this, that the Bible has not changed. That this is the word of God that's been preserved for us. Believing in it, it's a different topic. But we can't say in question really the accuracy of it anymore because it's been scrutinized so much that you can trust your life with this book. And I'm praying that, that you will, uh, that whenever you read it, that you will see it in a different light, that this is God himself, that this is Jesus of Nazareth doing what only he can do. It's been preserved for us here in 2021 that gives you hope during this pandemic, that gives you hope during our anxieties and depressions, that gives us a way and to see a 